Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so encouraged this morning to be reminded that you are glorious and all-powerful. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. You've triumphed over death, and you've also saved sinners like us. You are truly a faithful friend. Your grace is sufficient. You are our help, our mediator, our shepherd. And Lord, there's nothing less that would ever be acceptable than taking up our cross to follow you. I pray that you'd fill us with that resolve, that we would embrace the glory and the goodness of being your servants this morning, being under your divine authority. Lord, make our hearts receptive today to your word and to the things that you would teach us. I pray that you would empower me by your spirit to proclaim it clearly and boldly as I ought, and that you would help us by your spirit to sit underneath your word, to receive its instruction, its exhortation, its rebuke if necessary. And Lord, may we, go, may we go from here strengthened, humbled, and encouraged. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open up this morning once again to the little book of Titus. We've been working our way through this little short letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his partners in ministry, a man named Titus, who had been given a task. Titus was tasked with establishing healthy churches on the island of Crete. Paul had said, I left you there so that you could put in order what remained. There's work to be done. It's essential that the church be sound, that the church be healthy, that it be established in the truth. A healthy church is filled with people who love the truth and live in light of it. We need healthy leaders, healthy doctrine, healthy church members. So this is a practical book, timely for the church in Titus' day, This is what they needed to hear, and I believe it's also timely and practical for us as well. If you were with us last week, we saw um, in the beginning of chapter 3 the importance of a gospel-driven humility. Paul's logic is that we need to remember where we came from, that we were once sinners, we were foolish, we were lost, and so we treat others outside the church as being people in need of grace, just like we were. We need to remember God's mercy towards us in the gospel. It keeps us from pride. It keeps us from self-righteousness. It keeps us from being harsh towards outsiders. It prompts us to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So we talked a lot about this humility last week, this spirit of gentleness and courtesy towards others. But that may raise the question, does this mean that we're supposed to be soft-spoken? We're supposed to be compliant in every context and in every situation? Does this mean that the definition of godliness, the the, the standard of following Jesus, just means being nice to everybody? No. The gospel has some sharp edges. The gospel is an authoritative message. And while personal glory, as we saw last week, is not worth fighting for, the truth of the gospel is. And Paul urges Titus not just to teach Um, and model gospel humility. But he also charges Titus to discharge his ministry with gospel authority. I want to talk about that gospel authority today. Just to remind you where we've sort of been over the last several weeks, chapter 2 gives instructions for conduct in the church. We saw how the older women were to train the younger women and how Titus was to charge the young men to be self-controlled. He was to charge the older men to be sober-minded and dignified. All these different instructions for how people relate to one another within the church. And then he rooted all of those commands in the gospel message. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, for, he's given all these commands, and now he's telling us the reason why. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, until it's self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul grounds his instructions for good conduct in the good news. The godly living goes hand in hand with the message of the gospel. Paul's preaching the gospel to them. 
He's saying this is the basis for these good works. And then we see the same exact pattern in chapter 3. As we saw last week, he gives instructions to the church how they're supposed to relate to rulers and authorities, how they're supposed to treat uh, everyone who's outside the walls of the church to avoid quarreling and so forth and so on. And then once again, he grounds these commands, these imperatives, in the indicatives, in the the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 4. Once again, he starts preaching the gospel to the church. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we see this pattern in Paul's writing. He tells us what to do, and then he reminds us of what's true. He grounds it in the gospel. And then today I want to draw our attention to something that's very interesting to me, something that comes right after Both of these portions in Titus where he's talking about the gospel, right here at the end of chapter 2 and in the middle of chapter 3 where he rehearses the truth of the gospel, notice what follows next after these gospel gems. Look in chapter 2, verse 15. After laying out this gospel, he tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Following these practical instructions, he gives Titus a reminder of the gospel truth, and then he says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. We see the same pattern in chapter 3. Instructions, then a rehearsal of the glorious gospel in verses 4 through 7, and then look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I want to, if I could, sort of take both of these texts and fit them together. And and look at what Paul is saying. He's saying in verse 15, declare these things. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, insist on these things. So we have to ask the question, well, what are these things? What are the these things that Paul is pointing to that are so important? I think in both texts, both at the end of chapter 2 and here in chapter 3, these things refers directly to the gospel and to its implications. It refers to the gospel and its implications. That is what Titus is to declare with all authority. That's what he's supposed to insist upon. Titus has a job to do, and Paul says that it matters how he does it. It's to be done with authority. It's to be done with conviction and courage. The gospel message and its implications are to be central to Titus's ministry. And I think the truth that we draw from, from sort of the way Paul is arguing through these texts is this. That gospel authority produces and protects spiritual health. That's why he's telling this to Titus. Gospel authority produces and protects spiritual health. Listen, if we're going to be a healthy church, not just healthy in a financial sense, not just healthy in the sense that there's a lot of people sitting in the chairs, but spiritually healthy, then the authoritative ministry of the gospel needs to be central in the church. I want to examine the biblical basis for this gospel authority here in this text and just look very simply, number one, at the call for gospel authority. Let's look at the call for gospel authority in both of these texts. He gives Titus an imperative. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Declare these things. Declare them. Titus is to speak. To obey this command requires words. He's to proclaim. He's to teach. And this command to declare these things is in the present imperative form, meaning it's something he's supposed to always be doing, something he's to do continually. And repetitively, the gospel message and its ethical implications are to be the constant drumbeat of Titus's ministry. He says the truth must be spoken, is to be declared. 
is to be carefully examined, is to be thoroughly explained, is to be faithfully applied. Paul gave similar instructions to another young minister named Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Seems like this just wasn't a need only on the island of Crete. Timothy had a responsibility in Ephesus as well to do the same thing. And I would argue that it's our need today. Despite people's occasional lack of interest in hearing the gospel and its implications, despite people's aversion to this message at times, the church needs faithful preaching, gospel preaching, authoritative preaching. We need to hear of Jesus Christ. We need to hear of his gracious work on our behalf. We need to be reminded of the history of redemption, how God throughout the Old Testament wove all of history together to bring about the salvation of the nations through his son. We need to hear about the ministry of Jesus, about his teaching and his miracles and especially his suffering and his death and his resurrection. We need to hear the authoritative message of the apostles as they are commissioned by Jesus to carry on his message and establish the church. We need to have the mystery of mercy unpacked. We need to hear the grace of God rehearsed. We need to be reminded of the eternal life and the incredible inheritance that awaits all who have trusted in Jesus. And we need to be reminded of how God wants us to live in light of those truths. We need to be shown what God's will is so that our lives reflect his glory and so that our lives serve his purposes for spreading the gospel in the world and strengthening our fellow believers. That's why Titus is commanded to declare these things, to insist on these things. We as a church need these things. We don't need speculations from the pulpit. We don't need personal stories about Supposedly, all the things that I've done, and that if you try hard enough, you can be awesome like me. You know, that's not what we need. I don't have very many of those stories anyway, so we'd run out of material pretty fast. We don't need political insights from the pulpit. We don't need practical tips on bettering your life from the pulpit. We don't need gleanings from secular psychology from the pulpit. We need the life transforming gospel from the pulpit. We need the whole counsel of God to be preached with authority. Declare these things. Insist on these things. And a faithful declaration of the gospel and its implications, if that's to be done, Titus, well, then it's going to cause several things to happen. Paul starts to explain. Look back in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, declare these things. Well, what does that look like? First, he says, exhort, exhort. This is the word parakaleo. It means coming alongside someone to encourage them, to, to try to motivate them, to spur them on towards the right thing. Faithful preaching is not just going to speak to the mind, to give information. Faithful preaching will speak to the will. It's going to call you to act, to obey. A healthy church will not just talk about the truth in an abstract sense. A healthy church will talk about the truth in a personalized way that calls individuals to obedience to Christ, positively urging people towards God's will for their lives. So Paul tells Titus, declare these things and exhort. Your ministry is to be one of exhortation towards the saints. But there's a negative side to the coin. If exhortation is positive, well, it's followed up by rebuke. He says, declare these things, exhort, and rebuke. Rebuke. We've seen this word rebuke already back in chapter 1. You see, we're often affected by our culture. We soak in the things from the world around us. We have this sin nature inside us that needs to be exposed and reprogrammed. 
In Titus chapter 1, Paul says that, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Faithful ministry includes and often requires rebuke. Rebuke. If exhortation is speaking to the will, rebuke speaks to the conscience. To proclaim the truth faithfully, to declare these things, to insist on these things, means that there will be times where sin necessarily needs to be exposed, and it needs to be condemned for what it is, which is rebellion against God and His authority. Rebuke means diagnosing sin, not just as mistakes, not just as um, you know, struggling, but calling sin what it actually is, and then offering correction. Rebuke means sometimes confrontation. Very few people enjoy confrontation. If you do, you're kind of weird, if you get a kick out of that. I think most of us are a little bit averse to conflict. But Paul is telling Titus that faithful ministry includes rebuke. Confrontation, holding believers accountable to the clear teaching of God's revealed word. Rebuke means we challenge wrong thinking and the wrong behavior that flows from that wrong thinking. So he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke. And he says, Titus is to do this with all authority. That little word all, it just jumps off the page to me. Don't do this with a little bit of authority. Don't do this with some authority. He says, do this with all authority. Now you might say, where does Titus get this authority? Where does this authority come from? It doesn't come from Titus. It doesn't come from his personality. This authority is not based on his experience. This authority is not based on his education. It does not come from his expertise. Where does this authority come from? It comes from the message itself. Declare these things, Titus. Declare them. Exhort and rebuke with all authority because the message itself is authoritative. And that means that this authority should be present in the church as well. Since the message itself is authoritative, it matters how we handle the message. You see, the Jesus that we believe in is the Son of God, the King of Kings, who has risen, over, over, risen from the dead, and he tells his disciples as he commissions them, Matthew 28, that all authority has been given to him. All authority. So how can Titus declare these things with all authority? Well, because he's representing Jesus. He's preaching the message about Jesus. He's declaring the word that's stamped with the authority of Jesus. Since the message itself is authoritative, it matters how we handle that message. It is unfaithful, it is wrong to declare the truth of God as if it's merely a suggestion. To declare the gospel as if here's one option that might work for you. No, he says, you're to declare these things with all authority. You see, there's a difference between preaching about the gospel and preaching the gospel. There's a difference between talking about godly living and calling people to live a godly life. The difference is authority, not an authority that comes from any man, not authority that comes from a position, not authority that comes from a denomination or an educational degree, authority that comes from Christ and his word. As if Titus didn't get the point to rebuke them with all authority. He doubles down in the next phrase. He says, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. Why do you think Titus needed to be told, let no one disregard you? Can you imagine why? Probably because people will attempt to disregard him. They're not going to necessarily always like the things that they're hearing. People will disagree. People will dismiss Titus's concerns. People will make excuses. People will justify their behavior. And Titus will be tempted in those moments to give up. He'll be tempted to give in. He'll be tempted to stop short of fulfilling his God-given duty to keep declaring these things with all authority. 
And while we're to avoid being quarrelsome, as we saw last week, and verse 9, as we'll see next week, tells us to avoid foolish controversies. There's a kind of quarreling and conflict that we're to avoid. At the same time, we must not be intimidated or silenced when it comes to proclaiming the essential truth of the gospel. Similarly, in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul tells him, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. That little word, insist, has the idea of confidently asserting what is true. Insist on these things. Don't be intimidated. Let no one disregard you. Keep asserting that it's true and that it's authoritative, whether or not people want to hear it or not. What does it mean for Titus to insist on these things? I think it requires, first of all, that he stresses that they are true. Insist on these things. Gospel ministry must both define and defend the truth, confidently asserting that it is true. You see, there's always going to be those who undermine or attack the gospel. The gospel can be, can be destroyed either by addition or subtraction. And so faithful ministry is going to insist that, no, this is the gospel, not that. And only this is the gospel. You can't add in good works. You can't add in these other things. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by his grace and mercy alone. Titus must stress that these things are true. The gospel must be biblically defined and defended. But he also needs to stress not just that these things are true, but he has to stress that these things are necessary. And I think that's often the challenge in the, in the broader church today, is that the gospel easily gets set aside. Some people think it's not that important. But no, these things, the things that Paul has been relaying to Titus, the gospel and its ethical implications, to stress them, to declare them, to not back down means saying, no, these are the necessary things. They must not be forgotten or left out. And it also means stressing these things, not just as being true, not just being necessary, but also that the gospel message is primary. This is the most important thing. As Paul told the Corinthian believers that the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15.1, is of first importance. This is the main thing. It's the primary thing. He is to stress and declare these things, not other things. Too many churches get sidetracked onto a hobby horse that is something different than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel must not be minimized or overshadowed or forgotten. It is of first importance to stress these things, to insist on these things, means that Titus is to keep banging the drum that this is what's true, this is what's necessary, this is what's most important. His responsibility is therefore to challenge error, whether in belief or behavior. His calling is to define and defend the truth, to assert with confidence both the gospel and its implications. Gospel ministry is to have the flavor of confident authority. And this insistence, this refusal to allow anyone to disregard him, says, let no one disregard you. Well, what happens if they do? What happens if someone says, no, I think the gospel is something different? Or no, I think it's okay for me to live this sinful lifestyle? Well, Paul tells them there's actually teeth with this command. There's some muscle behind this authority. It could lead all the way to church discipline. Look in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. There's authority here. Authority that could even lead to discipline if necessary. Unrepentant sinful behavior and unrepentant doctrinal error, they're not to be tolerated. Whether a matter of belief or behavior, the gospel and its implications are to be insisted upon and declared with all Authority. That's the call for gospel authority. That's Titus's marching orders. But what's the reason for this gospel authority? Number two, the reason for gospel authority. Let's look at that. I think there's a number of reasons we could share. I'll just pull a, f- a few out. 
Number one, the reason why the gospel must be preached with this authority. The reason why the implications of the gospel must be insisted upon is because it's true. It's true. Look in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. The saying refers back to this little rehearsal of the gospel that he's just given in verses 4 through 7. This gospel gem, this definition, it's almost like a little miniature doctrinal statement talking about how we've been saved, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to God's mercy, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That saying, that formulation of the gospel, Paul says, is trustworthy. It's true. There's a strong emphasis on truth in this letter. If you look back in chapter 1, Paul opened up with this in chapter 1, verse 1, that his apostleship is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The truth matters. Elders, pastors, as we saw later on in chapter 1, verse 9, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Godly leaders are committed to the truth. And the problem with false teachers, Paul points out, is that they turn away from the truth. Chapter 1, verse 14. They turn away from the truth. So here Paul confirms what the truth is. This truth he's been talking about as being so important, this truth that he wants to see spread, this truth that faithful leaders are to hold to, the the truth that false teachers have compromised on, it's this formulation of the gospel. It's a trustworthy statement. The gospel is the truth. It's a necessary truth. There's no eternal life apart from this gospel. It's an eternal truth. This message never changes. It doesn't go out of style, whether in the first century or the 21st century. And however long Christ tarries, this is the eternal truth. It never expires. It never goes out of style. It is always relevant. Always. It's a transforming truth. As we saw That the grace of God trains us and teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's the grace of God that makes us clean, that makes us new. It's this washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's a transforming truth. It's a comforting truth. In the gospel, we find hope of eternal life. Hope of an everlasting inheritance. And there's no amount of suffering or setbacks that can take that from us. This gospel is true. It is a confrontational truth. It exposes our sin. It rebukes us for being like the world. And it's a universal truth. It applies to all men everywhere at all times. The grace of God, chapter 2, verse 11, has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The gospel is true. And if Jesus rose from the dead, if this is true, it really does change everything. Paul says this statement is trustworthy, and that is why it must be declared with all authority. That is why he is to insist upon it, because it's true, because it's true. But he's also to insist on these things, not only because the saying is trustworthy, back here in chapter 3, verse 8, but look at what he says next, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The gospel is true, and it's also good. It's good. It's good for us. It's good for people. It leads to good fruit. It leads to good works. The gospel is good for believers in that as we come to believe in this message and as we come to submit ourselves to the will of our Savior, these implications of the gospel... This leads to a clear conscience. We have forgiveness of sins. You can't put a price tag on that. Forgiveness of sins, a clear conscience. But it also leads to a clear conscience in the sense that this grace trains us to put our old ways behind us. A clear conscience, not just knowing that my sins are forgiven in the courtroom of God, but also knowing that I'm increasingly committing these sins less often than I used to. That there's certain aspects of sin that have been permanently forsaken and cast off. A clear conscience to know that you're walking in obedience. 
I'm convinced that so much of what falls under the banner of mental health today is people dealing with a conscience that is guilty before God and trying to compensate with it in all sorts of different ways. I'm not saying that solves every aspect of mental health. I'm just saying so many of our problems emotionally, psychologically, are because we're not right with God. We don't have a clear conscience before him. There's unbelief. There's lack of forgiveness. We're still carrying the burden of sin. We don't know how to process guilt and shame. And we deal with the daily burden and the weight of of being enslaved to sin. And this gospel sets us free from that. The gospel's good for believers. It leads to a clear conscience. It leads to strong assurance. Do you know what kind of wholeness and happiness comes with knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are right with God and you're prepared to stand before him on the day of judgment? Assurance of salvation. That's good, isn't it? If the gospel isn't preached, if it's not asserted with confidence, if it's not authoritatively proclaimed, the church won't have that kind of assurance. It also leads to happy relationships. What does it look like if we go back to chapter 2 and we find that the older men have become sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled? If they're sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness, what happens if the older women become reverent in their behavior, if they're not slanderers, if they're not slaves to much wine, if they teach what is good? What happens when the younger women are trained to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure and working hard at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands? What happens if the younger men are self-controlled? You know what happens? Relationships in the church become a joy. Relationships are blessed. No wonder Paul says, you need to You need to keep banging this drum. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Listen, following Jesus is the good life. This is what brings joy. It brings peace. It brings harmony in our relationships. Most importantly, in our relationship with God. Secondarily, in our relationships with each other. But this is not just good for believers. It's also good for the unbelievers. When Paul says these things are excellent and profitable for people, I think he has in mind the benefit this would bring to the church, but also the benefit this brings to the world. Remember the concern he has for the outward flow of the gospel back in chapter 2, that they're to live a certain way so that the word of God may not be reviled, verse 5. According to verse 8, so that so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about them. Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is concerned that the gospel would be seen as true and powerful by the world. And a church that gets this, a church that is healthy, a church where gospel authority is vibrant, that kind of a church is going to have a powerful, attractional draw to those in the world that are seeking something more. A healthy church becomes a powerful apologetic. It's something God uses to save sinners. As we become, like Paul tells the Corinthians, an aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. Listen, gospel authority produces and protects spiritual health. And anything less than this, any neglect or weakness in this area is a failure Anything less than an authoritative gospel ministry will result in a weak faith, weak morals, a weak church, a church that fails to bring proper glory to God, and a church that tragically misses out on the joy of transformation and the joy that comes through believing and obeying God's word and the joy that comes through seeing God use us to reach people outside this church with the gospel. This text gives us assurance that godly authority in the ministry of the gospel is essential, it's healthy, it's necessary. Therefore, and here's where it starts to get practical for all of us, therefore, this kind of ministry must be affirmed and embraced. This charge is given to Titus, yes, as he's seeking to establish the church on the island of Crete. But these exhortations extend beyond Titus, I think, to all the elders and the pastors of those churches and, and beyond those original pastors and elders on the island of Crete to pastors and elders in every generation, in every church. And I think it even extends beyond just the leaders of the church. 
These things, these commands, these priorities extend to the whole church. The teaching is here so that you know what to expect from godly leaders and so that you can support and participate in these same efforts. You have a part to play in this kind of gospel ministry. Leaders are supposed to set the temperature in the room, yes. But the expectation is that godly leadership will be followed, that it will be emulated, that this message will be heard and the example followed, that all of us participate to some degree in declaring these things, insisting upon these things, in exhorting one another, in rebuking one another. There's something to learn here and something to obey, I think, for every Christian. It's not just for pastors. And in light of that, I want to ask a few questions. Number one, what is something that would keep us from carrying out the priorities given to us in this text? First question, why don't we receive and welcome this kind of authoritative gospel ministry? What are the things that might get in the way? What keeps us from receiving, embracing, welcoming, affirming this kind of ministry? I just want to share five reasons why I think we might be a little resistant to this kind of gospel ministry. Number one is suspicion. Suspicion. People today are skeptical of authority. We're skeptical of it. We're wary of it. We're cautious, maybe sometimes fearful, because we're very aware of the harm that ungodly authority can cause. We see it at every level of life in society, whether it's an abusive marriage or a tyrannical government. It's the same problem. It's abusive authority, harmful authority. We see the dangers of this ungodly authority all around us. Many of you have been affected by it negatively in one way or another. Maybe you've had even harmful authority that's been in the church that you've suffered under. And so we're on guard. We're suspicious. That might keep us from embracing and receiving and affirming the proper godly use of authority in the church. Not only are we suspicious too often of authority, but secondly, this kind of gospel authority hurts our pride. Our resistance to authority too often runs deeper than just a proper and appropriate caution. Yeah, we should be cautious. Authority can be abused. But I think a lot of times it runs deeper than that. Some of us just find authority in general to be distasteful. We're allergic to being told that we're wrong, to being told that we need to change. We don't like being told what to do. And we've been doing that ever since the Garden of Eden. When our first parents rebelled against God's authority, he said, don't eat from this tree. And they decided to trust the whispering of the, sat- of, of, of the serpent, Satan. And they decided that God's authority wasn't good, that they had a better idea. They didn't like feeling limited and constrained by what God had told them. That's a problem. It's part of our sinful nature. Sometimes we're suspicious of authority, but sometimes we're just proud and we don't like being told what to do. I think a third thing that may keep us from receiving and and welcoming this kind of authority is that it obligates us to obedience and godly living. It obligates us. It's one thing just to nod and smile and say, yeah, I like it when JD tells that guy what he's supposed to do. It's another thing when all of us have to sit under God's word and say, God is calling all of us to do something. There's an obligation that comes with that. And what it means is that we might have to give something up that we don't want to give up. You don't want to give up your individual autonomy. You don't want to give up your secret sinful habit. You don't want to give up your free time. You don't want to give up control of your money. You don't want to give up a lot of things. And when we hear the authority of Christ being proclaimed, we know that it's going to obligate us to obedience and godly living, and so we're a little bit resistant towards it. Think a fourth thing that may keep us from receiving and affirming this kind of ministry is that this kind of authoritative ministry is not what we're most interested in. Okay, he's just hammering this whole thing about the gospel again. I thought we did that last week. Can we move on to something else? I'm not interested in hearing about Christ's authority over my life and what God's will is for me this week. 
I'm just here to get a little, you know, recharge, and I, I got a busy week up ahead of me. I'm not most interested in hearing the gospel. Maybe some of you are distracted by other things. You don't want to hear these things insisted upon. You don't want to hear these things declared because there's other things that have captured your heart. Maybe some of you aren't interested in exhortation or rebuke because you think you're beyond that. Like, listen, J.D., I've already figured out most things. I think I'm in a good place. I'm not really the one who needs this right now. It's somebody else. Some of us, we like to learn. We like to, you know, oh, that's interesting. I got a little more background information about that passage. Or, okay, I learned a little bit more about this biblical word. I I like learning information. But we're not interested in being challenged. We're not interested in the spotlight being focused on our own hearts and being shown where we're wrong and we need to change. I think a final reason that we're often resistant to authority rather than embracing it is that it requires submission to Christ. If I could just be very direct right now, if all of these previous reasons describe you, if you're suspicious of authority, if it offends your pride, if you don't like being obligated to obedience and godly living, and if you're not interested in hearing the gospel and its ethical implications, then we have to ask the question whether or not you know Jesus Christ, whether or not you're actually submitted to him, whether or not you have a new heart, whether or not he's changed you, given you eternal life. Have you been born again? Do you possess genuine faith? No one is perfect. But if there's genuine faith there, that it means at one point in your life you recognize the sinfulness of sin and you heard the call of God in your heart and you repented of your sin and you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and you said, I'm willing to take up my cross and follow him. The old me is dead. This body, this soul is now under new management and it's Jesus Christ. He's not just my savior, he's also my king. If you've experienced that moment of conversion, that moment of change, where you become a follower of Jesus Christ, then there has to be something in you today that resonates with what I'm saying. You might say, yeah, that's hard for me sometimes. I know I need to grow, but this is good and this is what I want. But if all of this is offensive and undesirable to you, I think the real issue is that perhaps you've never come to that point where you've humbled yourself at the foot of, at the, foot of the cross, where you've received the gift of salvation. If there's a hostility in you towards the authority of Christ, which comes out in preaching, it comes out in conversations, it comes out in counseling, it comes out in discipleship, it comes out in friendship, that authority of Christ trickles down through his word, through his people to us. So I think we can draw a straight line. If there's resistance towards that, it means you have a problem with Jesus. And what you need today is to humble yourself before Christ and become reconciled to God through faith in him. These are the things that keep us from receiving and welcoming and affirming faithful, authoritative gospel ministry. And we all have an obligation to receive that. But I want to flip the the tables a little bit and think about, okay, what about the other end of it? What is it that keeps us from participating in, in the declaration and the insistence on these things? What is it that keeps us from proclaiming the gospel and its implications? What is it that keeps us from exhorting one another, rebuking one another, and keeping the main thing the main thing? I think there's a couple things I'm going to share four that might keep us from participating in this gospel ministry. Number one is false humility. False humility. Some people today have been influenced by a lie. There's a lie that says certainty and confidence... And any sort of dogmatism is simply proud. Who are you to think that you have it all figured out? Who are you to say that someone else is wrong and you're right? But I think that frames the discussion incorrectly. Because properly understood, this authority and these truth claims aren't my authority or truth claims. They're not your authority or truth claims. It's the authority of Jesus and his truth claims. So we're trying to get people to come face to face with Christ with his work on the cross, his word as it's recorded in scripture. 
And it is not in any way proud or arrogant to tell people what Jesus has done and what Jesus says. That's not us elevating ourselves over other people. That's actually being humble to say that we're not in a position to tell Jesus he's wrong. You can try it if you want. You can take that up with him. I'm just the messenger. Don't buy into the lie that any sort of authority, any sort of dogmatism, any sort of certainty when it comes to the truth of the gospel is somehow arrogant. That's a postmodern idea that says you have your, your truth, I have my truth, what works for you works for you, I'm going to do me. That sort of mentality is a lie. An authoritative gospel ministry cuts right through it. And it says, thus says the Lord. This is true. This is good. This is necessary. This is most important. And you must respond to it. And that's not arrogant or proud. I think there's a kind of a false humility that thinks we can't somehow speak that way. Because it's seen as proud today. But that's a lie. I think it's actually proud to presume to judge God, to say that he's been insufficiently clear or that his authority is not the final word. To offer Jesus as one option among many is actually proud. To think that we could come up with something else that's better. There's a second thing that keeps us from participating in this kind of ministry. It's the fear of man. It's the fear of man. Proverbs tells us that the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts the Lord is safe. The fear of man leads us to be hesitant, to be unsure, to be indecisive. Perhaps we fear rejection. Well, if a pastor preaches like that, he's going to run people off. If I talk to my coworker about the gospel and tell him he's a sinner, he might not ever talk to me again. If I lovingly rebuke that guy in my small group for his sin, he might get offended and it might be really awkward. Yeah, it might. Perhaps we fear rejection. Perhaps we fear criticism. But what that reveals is that we are what the Bible calls respecter of persons. We're taking people too seriously. We're fearing them more than we fear God. They've become very big in our mind. And God's become very small. The fear of man keeps us from this kind of ministry. Whether it's public ministry or whether it's interpersonal ministry, the fear of man just cripples and kills the proper kind of authoritative proclamation that is required. There's a third thing that may keep us from participating in this ministry, and that's a failure of priority. Some of us are declaring and insisting on a lot of things, and it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, our zeal has been hijacked by these other causes, and it's not devoted to Jesus Christ. This is gospel neglect. It means we're taking our marching orders either from the world or from our own flesh, and we're not taking our marching orders from Jesus Christ. It's a failure of priority. And I think a fourth thing that gets in the way for us is just simply a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. Sometimes we don't think that the gospel actually is the answer. And we start acting like the gospel doesn't have the power to change someone's life, more than just to change someone's life, to change someone's home, to change a church, to change a community, to change the world. We think the gospel isn't really the answer, and that's simply unbelief. And so we're tempted to try out gospel alternatives, other solutions to the problem of sin, other solutions to broken relationships, other solutions to guilt and shame that, that we carry with us. And we neglect to believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone, Jews and Greeks. That's simply unbelief. It's a lack of faith. We need to believe in the sufficiency and the power of this message. Listen, only the authoritative gospel will produce and protect spiritual health. And if we neglect this, if we minimize the authority and the priority of the gospel of Jesus and its implications, that kind of thinking, that kind of ministry will inevitably undermine the spiritual life and the spiritual vitality of believers. It will result in a weak church, not a healthy one. But as the gospel is proclaimed with authority, as it's declared, when the church becomes a place where exhortation and rebuke are not exceptions, but rather that's the norm. 
when the church is a place where we insist on these things, it's going to be good. It's going to be excellent. It's going to be profitable for people. It's going to bring health. A strong church, a healthy church that glorifies God and bears fruit and is greatly used by him in the world. So is this the kind of church you want to be a part of? Do you want to be part of a church where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed with authority and where the implications of grace, instructions for godly living, living are taken seriously? Is that the kind of church you want to belong to? Even if it includes exhortation and rebuke, that's the kind of church I want to be part of. And by God's grace, I think more often than not, that's what I'm seeing in many of you in this church. Those who aren't yet on board with that, I hope you'll join us. And those of you that are on board with that, we can't ever move away from it. We need to keep declaring these things. Keep insisting on these things so that we become and continue to be the kind of church that brings glory to God and honors him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess this morning that there is no authority in us. That all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And it's as servants of Jesus Christ that we have been tasked with a mission. And we've been delegated certain authority when proclaiming the truth of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from an abuse of authority, that we would never start thinking this authority comes from us, or that it extends to things that the Scripture doesn't speak to. I pray that we would stay close to the cross, that we would be convinced of its power and the authoritative message that you are now calling all men everywhere to repent. Lord, keep us from being a church that simply makes suggestions, that offers options. I pray that this church would be marked by biblical, godly authority when it comes to the proclamation of truth. I pray that that would take place from this pulpit, in our small groups, in our Sunday school classes, that it would take place in conversations between believers, in counseling rooms, in discipleship meetings over coffee. Lord, I pray that these things, the truth of the gospel, would be the heartbeat of this church. We want you to be glorified, and we want to see the benefit brought to your people. We want to see joy among Christians, and we want to see hope and life given to those who have not yet come to the cross to receive your grace and to submit themselves to your authority. So, Lord, take your word, and I pray that you would help us to live in light of it, to believe it, to obey it, by the power of your spirit. Amen.